Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. And for people listening to us on podcast or even on the radio, please find your way to the subscribe or follow button on your podcast listening platform and hit subscribe or follow. It really does help us out. And of course, we always appreciate your ratings and reviews. Five-star ratings are the best. Speaking of stars, it is very easy in this summer of so much going on in our politics and in our society and around the world to get really wrapped up in earthbound news. But it's also really healthy for all of us to step a little bit outside that realm and to remind ourselves there's a lot going on out in the natural world, out in the in the sky and in the universe. And we thought that it would be a very nice change of pace for all of us to think a little bit about some of the amazing stuff going on in science and particularly in astronomy. And we are very fortunate to have with us today, John Gianforti, who is an astronomer and the director of the University of New Hampshire Observatory. He's an astronomy instructor at UNH. He's also a science writer. He's an adjunct faculty member at Granite State College. He does a variety of really interesting things. He maintains a really interesting website uh, called The Sky Guy, and he is frequently featured in all kinds of publications on radio in New Hampshire. And he's with us today to walk us through some of the exciting recent developments in science and astronomy. John, welcome to Beyond Politics. Well, thanks. Thanks very much uh, for that great introduction, Matt. I appreciate it. Well, it's really delightful to have you. This topic is a particular interest of mine. And like I said, I think it's healthy for all of us to remind ourselves that there are important scientific endeavors going on around us all the time in the background. We don't always think about them, but they're delightful, they're interesting, and they're incredibly important to our long-term uh, technological and scientific development. So they're just great to talk about and think about. Let's start with the science story, the astronomy story, that has gotten perhaps the most attention in 2021, which is our exploration, our ongoing exploration of Mars, particularly uh, the Perseverance rover and the Ingenuity space uh, 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 helicopter. These are incredibly exciting developments. So why don't you just remind our listeners what's going on with these explorers and what have they found so far? Well, the Perseverance rover, the Perseverance spacecraft that carried the engineer, the Ingenuity helicopter, um, left Earth uh, last July, last July 30th. And uh, the spacecraft arrived at Mars uh, on the 18th of February of 2021 um, and was an uneventful trip to Mars, which is always good. Um, the spacecraft landed. Uh, successfully, which is uh, not always the case uh, with going to uh, Mars. It's a kind of a difficult planet to land on uh, for a number of reasons, but um, the Perseverance rover landed successfully and within minutes after it touched down, um, we got the first images back showing that it had successfully landed. And this mission to Mars was different because all through the descent to the surface, um, there were cameras operating. So not only did we know that the spacecraft landed successfully, 
but a short time after it landed and you know we cleared the dust, dust off the lens cap and popped the lens cap off the camera, we were able to see the video of the descent as it you know lowered by parachute to the surface. And there's a really interesting maneuver that the spacecraft performed um, uh, maybe 20 or 30 feet above the surface before it touched down called the sky crane maneuver. And that was captured on video with cameras from the spacecraft. And that was the first time that's been, that, that's, that was done. And it was just, just amazing to watch that complicated mechanism that lowered the land, the, the, lowered the rover to the surface from a hovering uh, spacecraft that had just slowed down from about 12,000 miles an hour to basically zero as it lowered by cable the Perseverance rover and Ingenuity helicopter to the surface. Wow. And it was just amazing. And that's never been done before. Well, it was the same mechanism was used for the, the Mars Curiosity mission, which landed on Mars on August 6, 2012. So it was, it was the same mechanism, the same sky crane maneuver. And if you want to watch that and, and, and for yourself, there's, um, you can always Google the uh, Perseverance rover and you can see that video, but there's a great video called the Seven Minutes of Terror that was produced by the NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory that it's an animation that outlines the steps required for that, that were taken by the Curiosity rover in 2012 and the Perseverance rover in February of this year and how they actually got the spacecraft to the surface. Wow. It, it's a little bit different on Mars. And because the rovers have so many mechanical working parts, intricate parts, and because Mars is so dusty, uh, the spacecraft can't land impulsively with rocket engines to the surface because it would kick up so much dust. And this cloud of dust would eventually settle on the uh, rover and its mechanisms, you know, gumming up the gears and messing up, fouling up the instruments and cameras and things. So about uh, 30 feet or so above the surface, the lander, which is coming down impulsively with rockets, stops its downward progression and lowers by cable the rover to the surface. Once it senses that the rover has touched down, it fires these explosive cutters that cut the cables sends the hovering spacecraft that's coming down impulsively off to the distance. And there you have the rover on the surface. So the seven minutes of terror ends with you seeing that rover sitting on the surface all by itself, ready to begin its mission. So it's, wow. it's, really, it's, it's a really great mission because you remember Mars is a long way away and radio signals uh, travel at the speed of light. So depending on how far Mars is away from Earth, it, it takes you know, between seven and 12 minutes, depending on the distance, for the radio signals to get back to Earth. So while the spacecraft is arriving at Mars and all these things are happening, uh, you, know, uh, you know, passing through the atmosphere, deploying the parachute and all that, that's happening autonomously because by the time we get word that it's happened, it's over, right? So we're seeing it in the past. 
because you know, there, so there's nothing we can do during the descent. It's all done autonomous, autonomously with software that's been loaded previously and in a pre predetermined sequence. So that choreography was all done by the spacecraft um, and stored commands from Earth. So it, it's just an incredible um, display of technology that was done with curiosity and then again for perseverance. Well, speaking of incredible displays of technology, the aspect of the mission that's gotten the most public attention is the little helicopter ingenuity and the first flight on another planet. So tell us a little bit about that. This, this sounds like a really remarkable achievement. It, it is. And, and it, I was really glad a few months ago, maybe it wasn't quite that long ago, but 60 Minutes did a segment. Uh, Anderson Cooper actually went to the robotics lab where they designed and built the Ingenuity and they showed some of the early failures. And, and so flying a helicopter on Mars um, or any other planet is difficult, but Mars's atmosphere is so thin compared to Earth's, about 1% as thick as Earth's atmosphere. So it's really hard to get lift. You know, that's what makes planes fly, right? We, if we travel fast enough on a runway, there's enough lift created by the wings to basically lift the aircraft off the ground. Um, but on Mars, your, your air is so it's so um, sparse, so uh, rarefied. Um, the atmospheric pressure is so low that you really got to get uh, helicopter blades traveling really fast, several thousand revolutions per minute to create the lift. Even though the, the Ingenuity helicopter is, is very lightweight, um, you still have to get it off the ground and be able to control it once it's off the ground. And up till now, the you know, it's, it's made 12 flights of increasing length and duration. Um, it's got a little over, uh, little over a mile, almost a mile and a half total distance traveled um, on, ab above Mars. And now, um, you know, originally the original plan was to have only five test missions for Ingenuity, but it's gotten 12 under its belt and they keep doing riskier and riskier trips going round trip to different places. Now it's scouting the path ahead for Perseverance, looking for interesting rock formations. Um, currently, uh, Perseverance is looking at a really interesting set of, of sedimentary rocks. So rocks, sedimentary rocks are formed in the presence of water. And that's been the mantra of missions to Mars, follow the water because where there's water or where there was water, um, maybe there's life. And that's been the quest, right? Finding life somewhere else in the, in the solar system. So that, that's been the story with Ingenuity. And it's just been performing very well with increasingly difficult tasks. And now, now it's a scout. Uh, now, in terms of that search for life, the previous Curiosity rover did make some important findings about the past presence of water on Mars, the likely past presence, I guess it's still a working theory, although we've added so much information and data to it that it's becoming, I, I, it, it certainly sounds to my less expert ears, it's sounding like it, it's, it's a pretty hard theory to, to topple at this point. But that, that search for past life or even lingering life on Mars is of course one of the primary reasons that we're doing all of this. 
what further findings has the Perseverance mission made so far? Well, Perseverance confirmed basically what the Curiosity rover has taught us. And that is um, we, we were always puzzled and curious of whether there were organic compounds on, on Mars. And organic simply means complex, um, complex um, molecules that have the atom carbon in them. It doesn't mean little creepy crawly things crawling around. It doesn't mean life. It just means carbon. Carbon is a really, really useful atom because it's um, because of its electronic structure. Um, it can bond with other atoms and create these long, beautiful molecular chains that life relies on, like you know, proteins and amino acids and and things like that. That life requires. Um, at least so far, that as for so far as we know. And previous missions um, dating back to the mid-1970s, the Viking missions, found that Mars was basically completely um, sterilized. There were no complex organics anywhere, which really kind of halted the Mars exploration in the mid-70s because scientists expected, because we see organics in meteorites, comets, asteroids, complex carbon um, molecules are prevalent in space. That doesn't mean there's life everywhere, but the building blocks for life are prevalent in the universe. Carbon's a fairly common element in, in the universe. Um, and so it's not surprising for us to have expected Mars to have some, but there isn't any. And one of the things we learned is that because Mars has such a thin atmosphere, it has no ozone layer. So the sun's ultraviolet rays basically pummel Mars's surface and ultraviolet rays are so powerful. Uh, they have so much energy, um, the, the same UV radiation that can give you a sunburn, it disassociates any complex organic compounds. So Mars's surface um, is sterile. Now, that doesn't mean there never was life or there is not life a few centimeters beneath the surface or, or deep below the surface. So the um, Opportunity and uh, Spirit rovers that landed on Mars in 2004, January 2004, they were the ones that proved that M Mars's surface once had quite a bit of, of water at the surface. We don't know for how long that took place, but we do know that Mar Mars had water at the surface, which means its atmosphere at one point, th three billion years ago, was thick enough to support liquid water on the surface. Right now, even if Mars was 75 degrees Fahrenheit and temperature wasn't an issue, uh, there isn't enough atmospheric pressure. There's not enough air weighing down on the surface to keep water in the liquid state. So if you were, were on Mars in your spaceship and you um, decided to go to your mailbox and get the mail and you walked outside with your glass of iced tea, before it would freeze, it would evaporate because there's not enough air pushing down to keep that liquid water liquid. So it just evaporates and becomes a part of the atmosphere. 
But for there to be surface water, like the uh, Spirit and Opportunity rovers showed us, and were later confirmed again by curiosity and perseverance, water was existing on the surface for Mars for quite some time um, in many parts of the surface. So what perseverance is trying to do, uh, and, it, and it just started its search for life um, a little over a week ago. Um, it didn't start so well, it had some problems, but it just started its looking for past life mission. And it's gonna do that by drilling into certain clay rocks. Clay is a, a great place to look for past life. And um, by drilling into the rocks, bringing that dust that, that was deep inside this rock, right, this clay-based rock, bringing it inside the laboratory, analyzing it um, to see if there's uh, strong evidence of past life on Mars. You know, it would be great if it, you know, rolled over a caterpillar. Um, we don't expect that to happen, right? Because right. It, it's cold, uh, there's very little air pressure, and the UV rays from the sun, because Mars is basically unshielded, um, right, would, would, would make a very hostile environment for anything living, at least as far as we understand life. But, but, but perseverance will continue that now that it's just started looking for past life. And I'm sure they'll straighten out the, it had a problem with drilling and retaining that dust and bringing it inside for testing. That's where the problem was last week. They thought they had a good core sample, but they didn't get any. Uh, they didn't get any. They didn't get any material. They're all, they're all disappointed and they're scratching their heads. Well, and of course, another thing that perseverance is doing is somewhat literally paving the way, not really, for future missions, including potentially manned missions to Mars. It's collecting samples that might later be retrieved and brought back for deeper analysis on Earth, and it's demonstrating a a, a great experiment that's acronymed to MOXIE in how you can take carbon dioxide on Mars and turn it into usable oxygen, a technology that was sort of speculated about in the book and the movie, The Martian. Um, have those uh, experiments gone well? Those experiments have gone well, yes. And you're right, you're exactly right. And you're very well read on what's going on on Mars. Um, so we did, we did uh, they did create, uh, produce oxygen, and that is kind of a test for future um, explorations of Mars. Well, that's very exciting stuff, especially for uh, geeks like me, who, as you as you kind of surmise there, really do enjoy this stuff. One quick lightning round question. Is it the case, as was the case in The Martian, that perseverance is nuclear power? It, it is, yes, it is nuclear powered, as was Curiosity. Um, it wasn't, it's not dependent on solar power like the Spirit and Opportunity rovers were and, and other spacecraft that have landed on Mars. So it has a long life. Uh, Curiosity landed in August of 2012. And that's, that's a long time to be operating and roving around. And it, it's really, truly amazing. And, and Perseverance also has a nuclear power, nuclear power source, just well, like in the great. movie. John, I want to turn to another planet 
And it's sort of the, um, you and I were talking right before the show and you were saying that Venus gets sort of the short end of the stick. We all get very excited about Mars. A lot of our, a lot of our literature and our science fiction is about Mars. No one, so there was, we were talking about the book and the movie, The Martian. No one wrote The Venusian uh, because that's, that's a little bit less exciting to people. But Venus is extremely important in a lot of ways for our understanding about how planets develop and a critical understanding about the future of the Earth. And now NASA is planning some new missions to get a much closer look at Venus. So why is it important to study Venus and what is NASA planning to do? Oh, those are really great, great questions to, to ponder and makes you wonder why we're going to spend, you know, millions of dollars exploring a planet that um, is whose surface is hot enough to melt lead. Um, but it, it's interesting. I have my own personal take on why it's been in the news so much and why three missions over the next 10 years will be launched toward Venus. But let me just exp just talk a little bit about what's what's the big deal about Venus. First of all, um, we have four planets in the solar system: Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. They're called terrestrial planets, and that basically means they're like the Earth. They're similar to the Earth: small, rocky, dense, close to the sun. Okay, and we have another group of planets called the Jovians or the gas giants: Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune very different than the inner terrestrial planets. Mars, are, so Venus and Earth are really, really very similar um, looking at them from a distance. They're about the same size. Venus is a few hundred miles smaller in diameter. Nearly the same density. Earth is a little bit denser than, than Venus is. Uh, and they're made out of the same stuff. But yet, they're drastically different when you take a closer look. Earth has a relatively thin atmosphere um, and Venus has a relatively dense atmosphere. It's about 90 times denser than Earth's atmosphere. So we mentioned earlier in, in the show that Mars has an atmosphere that's very thin, about 1% as dense as Earth's atmosphere. Well, Venus is nearly a hundred times that uh, Mars's uh, atmospheric density. So, on Earth, we when one of the things we learned from studying Venus is we learned about something called the greenhouse effect. If we took the Earth and magically moved it to Venus's distance from the Sun which is about an average of 67 million miles from the sun versus Earth's 93 million miles. The surface temperature of the Earth would be about 125 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot, right? But Venus's surface temperature today uh, is about 874 degrees Fahrenheit all over. Night and day, North Pole, South Pole, Equator, really hot. Like I said, hot enough to melt lead, hot enough to melt tin. So why is that? Well, it comes to come to find out one of the things we learned in the late 1960s or the mid 1960s and later was that Venus's dense atmosphere acts like a very warm sleeping bag 
when you're camping out in the White Mountains in the fall. A warm sleeping bag will trap your body heat so you're nice and comfortable, even though the outside temperature has dropped dramatically. So that atmosphere of Venus is acting like a thick insulating blanket and Venus is a, a hot planet. It's closer to the sun. It is a geologically active planet. So there are active volcanoes spewing carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide and other gases into the atmosphere. And over the billions of years that, that Venus has existed as a planet, um, this trapped heat has accumulated. And to the point where this runaway greenhouse effect has basically made Venus a very inhospitable place, at least at the surface. So the, the atmosphere interaction between the surface of Venus and its gases that make up the atmosphere is really important to learn about because, wow, we have a greenhouse effect on Earth too. But we're all taught in school that, oh, greenhouse effect, very bad. Well, not really. Turns out that if the Earth didn't have a greenhouse effect, that the water on the surface of the Earth would be mostly frozen. But the little bit of greenhouse effect that Earth's atmosphere provides is just enough to keep the Earth's water at the surface liquid so we can go ice skating in the winter and swimming in the summer. But when you change the atmospheric balance, that um, tipping point, which is unknown, um, is problematic. It's like doing an experiment with the only atmosphere you have. And that's what we've been doing for the last 200 years, right? Adding carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere that makes the Earth's insulating blanket of atmosphere thicker more effective. And of course, the average surface temperature is on the rise. It's not made up. It's not a question. It's not a hypothesis. It's a proven fact. And we're looking at evidence of that all over the planet. Now, it's difficult to hear that our way of life has created this situation, but I have a lot of confidence that we can realize what we've done in the past and how we can correct it positively in the future. There's every reason to believe that if we work together, this problem can be solved. Humans are really, really good at working together when they have to, and we have to. So clearly the major driver for these new missions to Venus is yeah. this question of this super delicate balance that we have on earth with the greenhouse effect and the overwhelming science that shows that that balance is getting out of whack. It's getting out of whack because of things that we humans are doing. And we really need to figure out how to stop that so that we don't end up with a surface like Venus's where you can melt lead. I wanna put in just a 30 second pitch for another reason to do this. For anyone who's doubting out there, why should we be going to Venus? If you enjoy the technological world around you, if you enjoy smartphones, if you enjoy computers, telecommunications, GPS, 
All of those things came from our investments in science that we made during the space race in the 1960s. The world around us today is basically the child of the science that we did trying to go to the moon in the 1960s. And this kind of basic scientific research always has long-term payoffs. If you want to learn more about this, we did a great episode on the Great Ideas podcast. Check it out. It's all about the return from federal research and development, scientific investment. And it was a great conversation. We've also had a conversation with the head of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Sudeep Parikh, um, who's a terrific expert on this. Same theme. This has a massive payoff for us back on Earth. Um, that little advertisement said, there's another interesting tie-in with the Venus missions, which is they may inform our understanding of how planets form and what might fall into the habitable zone as we study planets around other stars, exoplanets. I know that's a particular interest of yours. You do your own observations and research into exoplanets. So is that right? What is the tie between the study of our own planets here in our own solar system and this growing search for planets around other stars that could harbor life? Well, it's a great, it's a great question again, uh, Matt. Um, studying Venus will help us understand how rocky planets evolve. Was Venus ever habitable? And if it was, what changed? What caused it to take the turn in its, uh, its natural evolution that the Earth evolved uh, differently? Why did that happen? And it also helps us understand, um, as you mentioned, the architecture of other planetary systems. Um, about 25 years ago, uh, scientists, of course, uh, science fiction writers, Hollywood producers knew that there were other planets out in space for, for a long time. It took the scientists a while to actually come to that same conclusion. But uh, in the early 90s, we got our first indications that um, our solar system is not unique. There are other stars, that have planets orbiting them. And in November of 1995, the first planet to be orbiting a star similar to our sun was discovered. From that point forward, November 1995, our count of exoplanets or extrasolar planets as they're sometimes called is well over 4,500 in more than 3,600 planetary systems. And, and we're just getting started. We're, we're still, um, you know, rookies at this kind of research, right? We're getting good. Our optics are getting better. Our methods of analysis of studying these other solar systems are, are getting better. It's a, a great topic of great interest for students because the, this branch of astronomy is barely older than they are. So while astronomy might be considered the oldest science, uh, exoplanet study is brand new and is very exciting. New, and it's very hard. When I give a talk that I'm going to touch upon exoplanets, I have to do research to find out how, what the planet count is up to that day. Because if I gave a talk yesterday, it would be different today because that's how many new planets are being found. So studying Venus, studying Mars helps us to understand um, how solar systems form, 
how planets can be different in the same system. And, you know, we, we thought once we started, once we started finding planets, we thought that so our solar system would be typical. Like, oh yeah, all, we, you know, every solar system has a bunch of little planets close and big gassy planets far away. But that is absolutely not what we found. We found, in fact, to date, there are no solar systems like the one that we have currently inhabit. There's more than 3,500 other solar systems, but they're all different than ours. And that just, just, it just it's an amazing revelation of how um, different, how diverse the, the solar system community, if you will, is in our part of the Milky Way galaxy. We, the first planets we found were very, very, very large, low density gas giant planets like Saturn, like Jupiter, Uranus and Neptune, but orbiting so close to their parent star that it only took a couple of days for them to orbit, which means they were, they were only a couple of million miles away from their parent star. Well, the Earth is 93 million miles, Venus 67 million miles, um, and Mercury 36 million miles. So the first planets we found were the big, massive, easy to find planets that were orbiting close to their star. And we, we were blown away by that. But it makes sense, right? You're gonna find, when you're looking for something that you don't know what you're looking for, you're going to find the stuff that's easy to find first. So we found those. But as we got a little bit better, as we broadened our search, improved our methods of analysis for the data that we collected, um, we found that, hey, there is a lot of rocky planets out there. We found Earth-sized planets. We found planets smaller than Earth. We found planets that have, um, we found solar systems that have seven planets, six planets, five planets, um, and planets with wacky orbits. We found planets orbiting stars that aren't single stars, that are double stars, just like the planet Tatooine in the Star Wars movies. That's a, a double star with a planet orbiting it. Many scientists thought that the dynamics of, of a double star system would prevent planetary formation. Well, we know that, that that's not true as well. So we're learning a lot of different things. And just by learning, by studying Mars and Venus in the 60s, we learned more about Earth. And by, by applying what we know about Earth to other planets like Mars and Venus, we learn more about those planets. So our knowledge of our solar system has informed us about planets orbiting other stars. Similarly, by studying the architecture of other planetary systems, it helps us better understand our planetary system. And that's crucial for a species that wants to continue um, and thrive and survive. You, 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 you need to understand your neighborhood, right? You wouldn't move to a neighborhood without checking how risky it is or what kind of services there are, right? So you wanna learn as much as you can about your neighborhood about our solar system, about this part of the Milky Way galaxy. So that's why we spend money and time and effort studying other planets. Sure, we're curious, 
about life elsewhere. The, the reason for exploring Mars, really, don't listen to Elon Musk, isn't to colonize Mars. It's to learn about the planetary evolution of planets and how we can apply that to learning about our planet. I mean, in, in just our short lifetimes, our planet has changed dramatically. So by studying other planets, that gives us more information about how our planet could change. For people who find this discussion as interesting as I do and are maybe excited to kind of get into it a little bit more themselves, there are some really interesting things that you can look up with the unaided eye right now and see in the sky. And of course, if you have a backyard telescope or you can pop over to an observatory, there's even more interesting stuff. Tell us a little bit more about what people can see. Last year, we had this incredible conjunction in the sky of Jupiter and Saturn. They were sort of marching across the sky right next to each other. It was incredible. Right now, as we record this in August, uh, there's another very interesting kind of confluence of those two planets, but there's also all kinds of other things to see. So what, what should people be looking out for? Well, it's, it's a great time. Uh, this summer is a great time for planets in the evening sky um, in, in late August, early September. Uh, in the west, uh, the direction where the sun sets, just after sunset, <clears throat> just after sunset, we have um, Mercury and Venus visible two terrestrial planets. So if you count Earth, that's three planets in one glance. Not too bad for if you're capturing, if you're bagging planets. That's, that's, uh, that's kind of unique. Um, on September 9th, there's a great trio visible in the Western sky just after sunset. You have to have a good exposure to the West though. They have buildings and trees in the way you won't see Mercury because it'll be really low. But on that night, you can actually see Mercury, the moon and Venus really close together. Somewhat easier to view, and, and both those, those planets are visible to the unaided eye. Later in the evening, almost as soon as darkness falls, on the other side of the sky, in the east, we have Saturn and Jupiter, as you were talking about. Since the 21st of December last year, when we had that planetary conjunction, when Jupiter and Saturn were really close together, they've been separating. Jupiter orbits, inside of Saturn's orbit. And the closer a planet is to the sun, the faster it moves. So from the 21st of December, 2020, the distance between those planets has been increasing. Saturn, I'm sorry, Jupiter is uh, pulling away in the sky from Saturn. So the distance is increasing. Saturn rises first in the east, it's kind of a, like a bright star, kind of all by itself. It has a creamish tan color to it, not overwhelmingly bright, but it looks like one of the brightest things in that part of the sky. Further to the right, I'm sorry, further to the left, east, if you're facing east, Jupiter will blow you away. It's a bright yellowish star-like apparition. It, you can't miss it. You'll, you'll at first think that it's a, an airplane with its landing lights on. Um, and it, I think it has a yellowish tint to it. And that planet, even with the unaided eye, is just an uh, interesting sight to behold in the evening sky. With telescopes, however, you can see the rings of Saturn. You can see some of the moons of Saturn, of which it has 82. Jupiter uh, has 
second place in the moon count in our solar system, you can see the four moons that Galileo discovered in 1610 with a pair of binoculars, easily seen in the telescope. So this is a great part time of 2021 to observe the planets. In fact, August and September are among the best months of the year to see these two planets. And they'll be prominent all the way through the fall. For our New Hampshire radio listeners, I will say that I myself, living in New Hampshire, outside of Concord, the, the night sky was dark enough that with a good pair of binoculars, and I prop my elbows up on the arms of my chair to make sure that I was holding things real steady, I could see those four Galilean moons around Jupiter. It's really cool. It's really fun. So I definitely commend that to all of our listeners. Before I let you go, John, you mentioned that you have a number of exciting things going on at the UNH Observatory. Do you want to tell folks about them? Yeah, I do. Thanks, Matt, I, I, for bringing that up. Um, the U, UNH Observatory <clears throat> is now open for our public sessions. Uh, the public sessions run on the first and third Saturday evenings of the of the of the month um, in September and all through the summer they've operated from nine to eleven p.m. Uh, in October, as it starts to get dark earlier, uh, we change those hours uh, from eight to ten. Better for younger kids too. Um, so, and we have public um, sessions that are free and open to everyone. Um, and we also do private sessions for people. I've hosted quite a few families this summer. Um, and you can check out our website. You can check out our UNH Observatory Facebook page, which we update uh, almost every week. And that's a, a great place to learn. We've got a lot of live streams and recorded videos that we placed up there to try to get people to um, get out uh, under these pandemic conditions and do something with, together as a family in their own backyard. So join us at the observatory. It's free. We always have a good time. And um, in, in, you can bring your grandparents and bring your, bring your parents, kids, because uh, it's, uh, it, we have a lot of great conversations and discuss a lot of really interesting questions with everyone. Well, it, uh, it does sound like a ton of fun. And of course, as you were describing before, people can do a heck of a lot in their own backyards, maybe informed with a little bit of Facebook live streaming. And of course, they can check out the Sky Guy, your website, for all kinds of other images and information. All right, I'm going to give you one bonus lightning round question. We just have a minute or so left, but I got to ask, there's one more headline grabbing story this summer that involves astronomy to some degree, and that is the government's reports on UFOs. And we were talking before the show about the fact that this used to be considered kind of fringy, but people are taking seriously the fact that there are things in the sky that we see that we can't fully identify. In 30 seconds, what's your quick take on all of these revelations? Well, that that's, that's very true, Matt. There has been a lot of talk about unidentified flying objects. Now they have a different acronym for these uh, uh, un these objects that we see, but just because we see something in the sky that we can't identify doesn't make it a spaceship. If you're gonna make extraordinary claims about aliens visiting us in spacecraft, you gotta have some evidence to back it up. 
right. next time, next time we're going to get into the Drake equation and the Fermi paradox. John G. and Forty, uh, director of the University of New Hampshire Observatory. Thank you so much for walking us through this fascinating discussion. It's been my pleasure, Matt. Thank you very much for having me.